The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. It's created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Everyone, you're all very, very welcome uh, this evening. Uh, to this uh, inaugural memorial lecture for Professor Aidan Clark, and I've been told before I start uh, just to make a couple of safety announcements. Um, I'm going to sound like a, an air steward now, but uh, basically uh, there are two exits uh, to this room, one right behind you, uh, heading that direction, uh, and actually I think there might be one even there to the, to, the, to the right as well if anybody needs to make a mad run for it. Um, other than that, I hope uh, everything will um, go off without uh, incident. Um, my name is Miho Shukru. Uh, and I was uh, a student, actually, of Aidan's, um, both undergraduate uh, and postgraduate. Um, and there's many here in this room this evening who have, uh, you know, a number of different relationships with Aidan. Um, as I'm sure most of you have obviously would know of him and his work, um, he died uh, back in December 2020 uh, here in Dublin after uh, a short illness, and his loss is still keenly felt and by many here in the academic community in Trinity and beyond. Uh, and this inaugural memorial lecture is our tribute here in Trinity to Aidan, to a masterful scholar, an inspirational teacher, a generous colleague, uh, and a dear friend to many of us. And I'm delighted in particular that his children and some of his grandchildren uh, are, are able to join us here um, this evening as well, so you're particularly very welcome all. Aidan enjoyed a long and successful academic career, where in addition to his teaching responsibilities, he also served uh, for many, many years, I'm not sure quite how many, as head of department uh, and vice provost of the college on two occasions, as well as a term as president of the Royal Irish Academy. Now, for the last two years, the TCD History Seminar Series has been online. So this evening is the first live event since February 2020, which is kind of extraordinary actually when you think about it, just uh, how that has gone. And I would really like to thank my colleagues in Early Modern History, Susan Flavin, Patrick Walsh and Jane Almar, as well as the staff of the Long Room Hub for making all of this possible. And I would also particularly like to thank our invited speaker, Professor Ian McBride, who jumped at the chance to come over to Dublin rather than communicate with us from his bedroom back home via Zoom. <laughs> Professor McBride is the Foster Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford and has published extensively on the history uh, of Ireland in the 18th century as well as on a range of historiographical topics and on the Troubles and Peace process in Northern Ireland. Uh, he's a great person to, as I say, give this inaugural lecture. And without further ado, I'll hand over to said Professor McBride who's going to talk to us this evening about Jonathan Swift against Empire. So thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Michal. Um, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Right. Um, I did jump at the chance to do this, I have to say. I, I mean, it's an honour to be invited to give this lecture. I didn't know Aidan Clark, but I admired his work since I first read it and recommended it to students about 25 years ago. And of course, he, um, his writings are, 
are relevant to my subject tonight because Jonathan Swift repudiated the heritage of the old English settlers in Ireland but also borrowed from them in various ways. So my subject then is Swift who had a famously difficult relationship with Ireland, the country where he said he was born by a perfect accident. Um, and I want to discuss some of the ways in which Swift reimagined the Anglo-Irish relationship. Uh, hence the image you see here, which is the floating island of Laputa. Um, it's a plate from Martin Rosen's wonderful comic book adaptation of Gulliver's Travels. Uh, so um, there is what readers in 1726 would have seen. Balna Barbie um, is the, the cod Irish name that Swift gave to the Hanoverian dominions. Um, and that little um, DC over there, you can see Laputa um, bopping about in its magnetic field, but tyrannising over the inhabitants below. But I like this sort of cyberpunk Death Star version, <laughs> so that's why you've got it seen. Now, in the final pages of Gulliver's Travels, the gentle reader encounters some acerbic reflections on the method of planting colonies. Having returned from the land of the Winims and Yahoos, Gulliver admits that as an English subject, it's his duty to supply the ministry with an account of his four fateful voyages so that the islands he has discovered might legitimately be claimed as possessions of the Crown of England. And there are some of those lands. But for practical and principled reasons, he decides not to do this. To prepare a naval expedition to conquer Lilliput uh, would obviously be a, an absurd notion. But the other peoples discovered by Gulliver uh, were a more daunting prospect. Imagine for a moment English troops clashing with the giants of Brobdingnag or going into battle with the great flying island of Laputa suspended over their heads in its magnetic field, or pulverised by the hooves of 20,000 coolly philosophical horses <laughs> from Wyndhamland. These would be formidable adversaries, Gulliver thinks. A far cry from the naked Americans, as he puts it, encountered by Cortez in Mexico. In any case, Gulliver confesses that he's got some reservations regarding the imperial enterprises of European monarchs. And here um, I um, can't avoid quoting at some length. Um, this, the illustration is of the Kuna um, Indians of Panama from um, Lionel um, uh, Wafer's account, which is really um, almost as absurd a name um, as Lemuel <laughs> Gulliver. Um, so, I've got to quote a little bit now. A crew of pirates are driven by a storm they know not whither. They go on shore to rob and plunder. The natives are driven out and destroyed. Their princes tortured to discover their gold, <coughs> a free license given to all acts of inhumanity and lust. The earth reeking with the blood of its inhabitants and this execrable crew of butchers employed in so pious an expedition is a modern colony sent to convert and civilise an idolatrous and barbarous people. Well, that passage is probably inspired by Montaigne's essay um, of coaches, as Claude Rawson 
as noted, and Montaigne in turn drew on Bartolome de las Casas, whose brief relation of the destruction of the Indies, 1552, had been reprinted in England throughout the 17th century, first translated as The Spanish Colony in 1583, its original title mutated, um, becomes the Tears of the Indians, um, but it ends up finally as Popery truly displayed in its bloody colours in 1689, which is a telling end point. Um, the lurid descriptions of Spanish atrocities found in Las Casas, and, and which were accompanied um, by the famous illustrations by Debris, were not intended as a repudiation of imperialism, of course, but rather a bitter lament to the effect that asset stripping had taken the place of religious conversion, the true end of imperialism. By the end of the 17th century, however, Las Casas, the Dominican, the Dominican friar and bishop, had been repackaged as a sort of honorary Protestant, and in the process the viciousness of the conquistadors was no longer regarded as a betrayal of Spanish Catholicism, but rather a defining feature of it. Um, and there's the most famous depiction. This is the, um, the butcher shop, um, which um, tells the story of Spanish imperialism in the New World. And the interesting thing about it is that the Spaniards are running the butcher shop because cannibalism, of course, was the, um, the crime, um, the evil imputed to American Indians, um, which the Spanish were supposed to redeem them from. But the Spanish end up managing the butcher shop. And it's a rather similar tale to the tale that Swift tells um, in A Modest Proposal. So between um, roughly the 1710s and 1730s, which is the time that I'm mostly interested in this evening, Britain acquired a keener sense of itself as having an empire. Its dominions included the subject Kingdom of Ireland, the slave stations and forts of Africa and the East Indies, but the empire was most often envisaged as a transatlantic venture centred on North America and on the Caribbean islands. Of course, English writers, and the best example perhaps is John Locke, contrasted the English manner of colonising, peaceful settlement, cultivation, with the Spanish based on violent subjugation and the extraction of precious metals. Gulliver, too, hastened to reassure his readers that the colonies of the British, who congratulated themselves on being the freest people in the world, had been established on entirely benign foundations. And he cites, and I will have to read once more, their liberal endowments for the advancement of religion and learning, their choice of devout and able pastors to propagate Christianity, their strict regard to the distribution of justice in supplying the civil administration through all their colonies with officers of the greatest abilities, utter strangers to corruption. And to crown all by sending the most vigilant and virtuous governors who have no other views than the happiness of the people over whom they preside. So there's the, um, Gulliver's infectiously naive tone with the, um, the angry irony of Swift um, not quite concealed behind it. Now Gulliver's outburst 
is ranked as one of the classic denunciations of European imperialism. And Swift's pr protests against military aggression and empire building are one of the primary reasons that critics such as Laura Brown, Carol Fabricant, Clement Hawes and John Richardson have been drawn to his writings in the first place. But it's hard not to feel that something is missing from recent discussions of this topic. Gulliver's Travels was published 13 years uh, after Britain secured the Asiento contract, the monopoly over the supply of slaves to Spanish America. This, Hawes announces, is a significant fact. He proceeds to reprimand historians for fixating on the high political jockeying of Queen Anne's ministers. The real history of those years, he insists, was the acceleration of European colonialism. But what really motivated Swift's scathing depiction of British imperial expansion? How well informed was Swift about the colonies and what exactly were his views of them? What was the connection with the Drapier's letters and his other Irish writings? Surprisingly, nobody, at least to my knowledge, has posed these questions very directly. But perhaps Steve Pincus is an exception to that. But I'll leave that for later. So the natural place to begin searching for answers is London during the last years of Queen Anne's reign, uh, when Swift was for the first time in his life at the centre of the political vortex. And there's the inevitable Olivia Coleman. I mean, any history lecturer now, you know, hopes for a film to transform their subject, <laughs> especially if you're an 18th century historian, to lift it into the, um, the, the top of the undergraduate charts. <laughs> I really had hopes of this film, but somehow, in, in spite of um, Rachel Weiss and, and lesbian relationships, never really quite, quite did it. Um, in September 1710, Swift returned to what was then the largest and most vibrant city on the planet as the agent for the established Church of Ireland to lobby for the remission of the clerical taxes known as the first fruits and 20th parts. Within a month he'd been recruited by the new Tory government, led by Harley and Bolingbroke, and he would serve as their director of propaganda for the next two years. He articulated party policy in a series of brilliant essays in the Examiner periodical and in a sensational best-selling pamphlet, The Conduct of the Allies, 1711. Swift was in his element. No other writer rubbed shoulders with ministers so frequently or enjoyed such close access um, to the powerful. Now, advanced knowledge. Um, I'm not really sure whether this, this is correct or not. This is where I... I Brendan Toomey will um, tell me <laughs> if um, John Richardson and other scholars are to be relied upon. Advanced knowledge of the Asiento Clause enabled him to invest £380 in the South Sea Company in January 1712, confident that its stock would rise when it acquired the exclusive right to export slaves to Spanish America. So far as we can tell, however, Swift was not troubled by Britain's growing share of the African trade. The total number of slaves exported in British ships rose markedly during his politically active life, climbing from roughly 126,000 
in the first decade of the 18th century to 276,000 in the 1720s. Between 1690 and 1714, the management of the African trade, as it was known, took up more parliamentary time at Westminster than any other economic issue, generating 206 petitions and almost 200 pamphlets. But it was an economic question, not a humanitarian question. In political discourse, slavery still denoted subjection to arbitrary power or the unregulated power of a ruler who was consequently a tyrant and could be legitimately deposed. Louis XIV is the, the paradigm case. This ability to keep Europeans and Africans in separate mental compartments, however disturbing to modern readers, passed without comment. Accordingly, when Swift came to write his own history of the peace negotiations, the Asiento was mentioned only once in passing, and the context was a side swipe at, at um, Britain's loathsome allies, the Dutch, um, I mean loathed by Swift, that is. Now it's certainly possible to build up a more detailed picture of how empire impinged on Swift's world by combing through the journal to Stella and through his correspondence. But the results confirm that his references to colonial affairs were brief and incidental. While Swift was certainly fascinated by Travers' accounts of the apparently exotic peoples, such as the Tupinamba Indians of Peru, he showed little interest in colonial politics uh, in North America and in the Caribbean. And I can come back and try to justify um, some of that. Later. So let's move on then to the wilderness, political wilderness of Dublin, where Swift found himself marooned after the collapse of the Tories in 1714. Ten years later, of course, um, he would. Uh, ten years later, he would make himself the focus of political energy once again. Um, when his Draper's Letters, 1724, electrified Irish public <coughs> opinion. And that's sort of a curious engraving of the Woods Halfpence affair, which some of you here will probably know. Um, I think maybe it's, it's supposed to represent um, the resistance of the people of Cork to the landing of Woods Halfpence. Um, I see Patrick and I were nodding, so I'm going to keep, keep going for that. Um, uh, but um, the, the most enticing bit is these devils that are pulling um, Woods halfpence onwards. Um, so the Draper's Letters electrified Irish public opinion, contributing to an unprecedented mobilisation of the political nation against William Wood, the Wolverhampton ironmonger, granted a royal patent to mint copper coin for Ireland. The forced withdrawal of the patent was a humiliating defeat for London ministers used to subordinating Ireland's political and economic interests to their own, and it was allegorised in Gulliver's Travels um, in the um, rebellion of Linda Lino against Laputa, the Flying Island, um, an episode that wasn't actually published in 1726 didn't appear until much, much later. Well, if we turn then to look at Ireland between the 1690s and the 1720s, we find that the overarching political development of these years was the recasting of Ireland's relationship with England 
within an explicitly imperial context, a context in which the Protestant settlers in Ireland were increasingly perceived, and to some extent perceived themselves, as inhabitants of a province or a colony. The revolution of 1688, the glorious revolution, was celebrated on both sides of the water as a vindication of the ancient laws and liberties that distinguished the English from the slavish peoples of continental Europe. But the unprecedented concentration of power in um, that new sovereign entity, the king in parliament, would have profoundly constraining effects on Ireland. The more the king was accountable to his English parliament or British parliament after the incorporation of the Scots in 1707, the more the government of Ireland would become subservient, subservient to narrowly English commercial interests. Proposals to prohibit the import of Irish woolens to England had emanated from the manufacturers of the West Country as far back as the 1660s, but the campaign now gained momentum with the publication of an essay on the state of England in relation to its trade, 1695, by the Bristol merchant and MP John Kerry. Kerry's argument was that Ireland was simply a plantation or colony of England. Indeed, um, he thought Ireland was a colony of Bristol, <laughs> and its trade must be directed to the profit of the mother country. <laughs> well, Irish patriotic writers um, famously rejected the label of colonists during this period. And of course, I'm very conscious that Patrick Kelly is in the audience and has taught us so much uh, about um, all of this. Or rather, some did. William Molyneux's The Case of Ireland stated set out to prove that Ireland was not a colony like Virginia, New England or Maryland, but a distinct kingdom united to England only by shared allegiance to the crown. The argument was a legal and historical one designed to establish that Ireland had enjoyed the benefits of parliamentary government and the common law since the reign of Henry II. As he took pains to emphasise this legislative independence was vital to the security of the lives, liberties and estates of his countrymen. His conclusion made the point most forcefully and succinctly, I have no other notion of slavery but being bound by a law to which I do not consent. The conventional narrative of this period um, is one of legislative provocation from Westminster and fierce patriotic reaction in Dublin it's very heavily reliant on the writings of Molyneux and Swift. But underneath the rhetorical extremism that characterised this period, there was an evolving understanding of a mutually dependent relationship between the London administration and the Protestant political nation in Ireland. A number of writers, patriotic writers, people who regarded themselves as patriots, accepted the application of colonial terminology to Ireland, but sought to turn it to Ireland's advantage. One example was the Ulster MP and lawyer Francis Ansley, at least I think it was him, who urged the English to distinguish between colonies for trade, on the one hand, and colonies for empire. The first category, the colonies for trade, included the West Indies, Africa, and the East Indies, where a small number of colonists was required to regulate 
the plantation, the settlement of plantations and commodities with the natives. The second category, which included Ireland, were quite different. Here, inhabitants of the mother country were planted to keep great, and quoting here, planted to keep great countries in subjection and prevent the hazard of standing armies, um, in other words, professional armies. The same point which played in contemporary English fears of the fiscal military state, fiscal military machine created under William III, was made by James Arbuckle, Presbyterian essayist um, based in Dublin, writing as Hibernicus, by the economic writer Arthur Dobbs, and by others in the 1720s. But it was developed most fully by Henry Maxwell in an important work, Maxwell was another Ulster MP, an important work entitled Essay Upon an Union of Ireland with England, 1703. So to Maxwell, there's simply no point in entering the controversy over the right of Westminster to intervene legislatively in Irish affairs because it was determined to do so and it couldn't be stopped. Instead, uh, Maxwell thought the solution to Ireland's difficulties was a union, um, an alternative method of escaping political and commercial subordination. But his central argument was this, that in a free monarchy such as England, a province or as he called it, the term he used was an annexed state, could not be maintained by force. Roman precedents powerfully shaped the way early modern Europeans thought about empire. And um, if, um, if there's one thing that I, uh, one useful thing that I thought you might remember from this lecture, maybe that would be it. Um, <laughs> the English elite of all political complexions had learned to venerate the political culture of the Roman Republic and to fear the apparently inexorable drive towards territorial expansion that had dis extinguished Roman liberty. Maxwell's discussion of conquest followed closely Machiavelli and the English classical Republican James Harrington in his attempt to demonstrate that the military occupation of annexed states, incubated habits and structures of despotism which inevitably rebounded on the imperial centre, just as the military commanders Sulla and Julius Caesar had destroyed, quote, the liberty of the Commonwealth. Opposition to empire then was based less on the injustices and injuries suffered by colonised peoples than on the corrosive effects of military expansion on metropolitan institutions and values. Now, Swift's extraordinary ability to impose himself on the political landscape, the Irish political landscape, has obscured more pragmatic voices like Maxwell and Dobbs. And as I say that, I, I do have to add, he did um, sell a lot more copies <laughs> than they did. Um, less excusable, really, um, is the neglect by historians of the English reaction to William Molyneux's The Case of Ireland. Molyneux's The Case of Ireland. Critics included William Atwood, a leading Whig theorist, um, remarkably tedious, uh, Samuel Clement, and the political uh, economists Charles Davenant and John Kerry. Davenant's discourse on the plantation trade, 1698, remained 
and as Istvan Hunt once said, the most important discussion of commerce, colonies and empire for half a century. Kerry, was, um, I mentioned earlier, was the Bristol merchant um, who led the campaign against Irish woodlands in 1695 and after that, in August 1698 indeed, Kerry contested the Bristol election on an anti-Irish platform demanding that Ireland should, quote, be reduced to the state of our other colonies. Now these have been generally dismissed, or they've been dismissed, let me put that, let me put this a little bit more carefully, they've been dismissed by one Irish historian <laughs> as a mixture of derision, scorn and abuse. But the rejoinders uh, produced by Atwood and his allies occupy a decisive position in the history of British imperial thought in articulating the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, in addressing the problem of colonial obligation to English legislative authority, they anticipated many of the arguments employed against the American colonists in the 1760s and 1770s. They're a lot more interesting uh, than we have thought. Of all these works, it's the political economist Davenant who stands out um, for his brutal clarity. He argued that the development of the Irish woolen trade represented a threat to England, England's markets and should therefore be crushed before it acquired real momentum. This severe wisdom was necessitated by the centrality of commercial empire to England's war-making capacity in the age of Louis XIV. Equally severe was his analysis of the political status of the settler community in Ireland, and he wrote... When a part of the people divides from the rest to seek more territory, if they are at their own cost and strong enough to eradicate or keep under the natives, they become a new empire and may be justly termed a distinct nation. But if not at their own expense, and if they always stand in need of being protected by their mother country, they are in all appearance to be accounted as a colony. So Molyneux's case of Ireland, um, I think, prompted the first serious attempt by English writers to conceptualise their empire as a single power structure, including both European kingdoms and transatlantic colonies. And what's more, Ireland continued to be an important focus of the intellectual development of ideas of British imperialism into the middle of the 18th century. Think, for example of the celebrated discussion of empire in Cato's letters, um, the enduringly popular essays written by the real Whigs John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. Letter 106, um, you just have to take my word for it that this was very popular stuff. Letter 106 appeared in London at the end of 1722 and was entitled Of Plantations and Colonies. Cato's complacent argument that arbitrary governments, like the French, had not been as successful as free states, like the British, in planting colonies, is often mentioned by historians. But letter 106 is an encapsulation of the themes um, surveyed here. The difference between colonies for trade and colonies for empire, that's how it begins, the dangers of military rule in Ireland, the economic effects of the Willen Act, and the warning that England must take Ireland into a partnership 
Otherwise, it will create the conditions in which the Irish will set up for themselves. Twenty years later, David Hume would make the characteristically David Hume, great Scottish Enlightenment um, philosopher, would make the characteristically subversive argument that the provinces of free states, like Britain, were more oppressed than those of absolute monarchies. To an absolute monarch, all subjects were simply subjects. They were all equally, as it were, equally contemptible. <laughs> but in a free state, you must make uh, what he called a great distinction between the various peoples incorporated into it. So as a, as a, a body politic becomes more participatory, it must differentiate more carefully between the different categories of citizen that are within it, or let's say the different categories of subject within it. As it democratises, and Hume put it this way, the conquerors in such a government become all legislators and will be sure to contrive matters by restrictions of trade and by taxes so as to draw some private as well as public advantage from their conquests. And the main example he cited was, of course, Ireland. So, um, let me recap. I've been trying to persuade you that Ireland was actually pivotal um, to thinking about empire in the decades after the Glorious Revolution. I've also been trying to suggest that Dublin in the 1720s was not the dull provincial backwater that Swift portrayed in his letters, but the people here were interacting in discussions, discussions that were being held on both sides of the water that were more complex than has been suspected, and they included people like Henry Maxwell and Arthur Dobbs. But there's still something missing if you want to understand the barbed comments that Swift puts into Gulliver's mouth about the advancement of religion in colonies and the virtue of colonial governors. Um, if you want to understand the emergence um, in Dublin in the 1720s of dark Swift, um, dark, you know, the dark abrasive Swift, the knife twisting Swift um, that we all like to curl up with, <laughs> um, or I do. Um, and this may be the place then to remind ourselves that Swift's overriding political commitment was bound up with his implacable hatred of Protestant dissenters in general and Scots Presbyterians in particular. As in England, the established church in Ireland confronted a number of distinct groups who rejected, who worshipped outside the national church because they rejected aspects of its liturgy or doctrine or government. But confessional divisions in Ireland were intertwined with ethnic divisions and demographic considerations absent from the English situation. In the northern province of Ulster, the critical mass achieved by Scots Presbyterians in the 1690s when Swift was there, uh, briefly, but for long enough um, to develop um, a real hatred um, of Ulster Presbyterians. Uh, the critical mass achieved by Scots Presbyterians in the 1690s enabled their supporters in London to portray them with some plausibility as the real backbone of, the, of England's interest in Ireland. 
the discipline and dynamism of the Synod of Ulster was the most pressing challenge faced by the clergy of the National Church. Now, whereas Swift depicted Catholic Ireland as a lion in chains, he described Protestant dissent as, quote, an angry cat in full liberty at his throat. The penal laws excluded papists from political influence and drastically restricted their property rights so that they were, as he put it, as inconsiderable as women and children. Mm. Present-day readers um, want to disagree with this because our histories of 18th century Ireland are based on the idea that there was a, an overriding antagonism between the Catholic majority and a Protestant elite that's propped up by British power. Um, British ministers at the time also disagreed, and that's why they wanted to um, undermine the sacramental test. Um, they wanted to um, create more unity among Protestants. Um, and the sacramental test, um, I should explain uh, if anyone doesn't know, um, was the mechanism that barred Protestant dissenters from political office. Now, that dissenters were even worse that Catholics was a principle from which Swift never deviated in his long clerical career. He was not the sole writer to adopt that position. Um, those priorities were, in a way, what distinguished Tories in Ireland. But he was by far its most conspicuous and unrepentant adherent. In order to illuminate the character and ferocity of his alienation from Dublin Castle, the centre of English power, I want to spend the bit of time that I've got left on the short incendiary tract that Swift published in 1720 entitled A Proposal for the Universal Use of Irish Manufacture, usually thought to be the first of his patriotic polemics, um, the work that um, marked his return to the political fray after a period of silence. The proposal is very well known <clears throat> to both Irish historians and to Swiftians. It was written at high speed in May 1720, and it recommended that the men and women of Ireland celebrate the approaching birthday of George I by dressing in clothes entirely of their own manufacture. And I don't think it's obvious to readers what a funny idea that was. <laughs> um, Irish clothes, of course, were thought to be very inferior. It was a striking and incongruous image. But to say that the proposal is a protest against English restrictions on Irish trade is to give a hopelessly inadequate description of the multifarious grievances woven together in this short tract. The immediate spur to this protest was, of course, the passage of the Declaratory Act, 1720, which um, formally marked um, Ireland's subordination to the Westminster Parliament. During the same parliamentary session, 1719-20, um, the copper fastening of Ireland's legislative subordination was intertwined with another devastating defeat as London sponsored a toleration bill to regularise the position of the Protestant dissenters, um, for the most part Northern Presbyterians. Those two things are closely connected in the minds of Swift and in some other churchmen at the time. And they combine to produce a sense of crisis um, within the 
the Anglican elite. Now, the centerpiece of the proposal was the accusation that recent ministers looked down on Ireland as if it were, quote, one of their colonies of outcasts in America. Nothing emphasises more neatly the limitations of Swift's anti-imperialism because it was generally the humiliation of the settlers that bothered him, not the repression of the natives. But Swift went on to give a, a specific example of the contempt shown to Ireland by its chief governors, and it was a particularly revealing one. It was the Earl of Wharton's speech from the throne, delivered in August 1709, in which he declared, so Wharton is Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, declared that it was Her Majesty's fixed resolution that dissenters shall not be prosecuted, persecuted, sorry, in the exercise of their religion. Dissenters shall not be persecuted in the exercise of their religion. But to be instructed by the Queen, a Stuart Queen, an Anglican Queen, that the laws protecting the established church from its enemies constituted a form of persecution, provided a painful lesson in the realities of political culture in the aftermath of the revolution. Wharton was the most uncompromising of the Junto Whigs. When his appointment as Lord Lieutenant for Ireland was announced, the Presbyterians in the North quickly mobilised, sent deputies to London, um, thinking that they could appeal to Wharton to have the sacramental test repealed by an act in England. So they would bypass the Irish Parliament and they would secure an act at Westminster to liberate the Scots Presbyterians of the North. Um, but Wharton's um, words were echoed in successive speeches from the throne by Lord Lieutenants. Um, so um, in 1715, for example, much the same thing was said, that the object of the British, of British policy in Ireland should be to remove differences between Protestants and secure their unity so that there will be no other distinction in Ireland but that of Protestant and Papist. And in all three um, parliamentary sessions between 1714 and 1720, English politicians continued to explore a variety of options for lifting or at least modifying the sacramental test. Um, now this was all um, wig speak um, it to use um, uh, Ian Higgins's nice terms, the kind of thing that made Swift's um, blood boil. And it was the target of his first pamphlet, A Letter Concerning the Sacramental Test, which appeared in 1709. The high point of radical, um, not to say reckless, Whiggism came in 1719 with the ministry of Stanop and Sunderland. I've never been quite sure how to pronounce Stanop. Um, uh, but there we are. Um, unable to progress. This was a very anti-clerical ministry in London, which found that it couldn't get any further with its programme, which was to um, lift restrictions on Protestant dissenters and weaken the character, weaken the grip of the Anglican Church in England. So to reassure its natural supporters, it held out the possibility of it repealing the sacramental test in Ireland, which was at least a promise that things were going in the right direction. And so a bill was framed to abolish the Irish test. And in 1719, Irish churchmen once more, once more closed ranks, 
because the central theme of the Lord Lieutenant's speech was the necessity of, quote, union among all Protestants. Now, as the new parliamentary session opened and the status of dissenters was debated once more, copies of an anonymous pamphlet were dispersed at the doors of both Houses of Parliament entitled Some Considerations Upon the Late Attempt to Repeal the Test Act. This was an attack on the Lord Lieutenant's speech. The language and arguments um, of the pamphlet were unmistakably swifts, although this tract has only come to the attention of scholars fairly recently, or to put things less modestly, when I discovered it. <laughs> the pamphlet is thematically intertwined with the proposal for the universal use of Irish manufacture and can profitably be read alongside it. It contains a series of well-rehearsed objections to the admission of Presbyterians to public office, rooted in their 17th century record of regicide and rebellion, and their fanatical pursuit of political power. But what really infuriated the author was the infiltration of the Irish Episcopate, the bishop's bench, here by interlopers from across the water, um, English-born bishops who, as he put it, come over in order to instruct and civilise us. And then he says, the words province, colony, plantation, conquest and dependent kingdom are ever in these men's mouths without knowing that the universal opinion of civilians, that the civil lawyers, is against them, and without being able to apprehend that one kingdom does not lose its legislature by being under the same administration with another. For if slavery were to be defined by the strictest rules of logic, there could be no other notion of it than that of being governed by laws to which we do not consent. Well, why is that important? It's important because, of course, it's the rhetoric of the drapier. It's the rhetoric that defeated Wood's halfpence. It's the rhetoric that would inspire the American colonists in the 1760s and 1770s. And it's the second great turning point in Swift's political career. The first, his letter on the sacramental test in 1708-09, pushes him towards the Tories. Um, this one... Um, convinces him that the Tories are really a spent force in Ireland, or at least they're not an independent political force, and the future lies with the patriotic um, combination against English interference in Ireland. So the, the point that I'm making about this is that Swift's defence of Ireland's interests was sectarian in character, not just in the sense that his, um, um, that his attention was focused on members of the established church to the exclusion of all others, but in the sense that it was crystallized in this particular episode um, in which he was defending the privileges of the established church against English interference. Um, now, I'm um, wrapping up. Um, so what I've been trying to argue then is that Swift's anti-imperialism is difficult to disaggregate from his wider political and religious attachments. And um, in order to reinforce my point, I want to turn finally to Thomas Sheridan's denunciation of what he called the modern way of planting colonies. In The Intelligencer, the weekly paper he produced with Swift in 1728. 
the modern way of planting colonies, a very close echo of Gulliver. In June that year, um, and the, the two men, of course, um, were collaborators and friends and worked closely together um, on this um, periodical. In that year, Sheridan contributed an essay describing a journey from Dublin to Drogheda and Dundalk, documenting the poverty of the country people. The essay takes the form of an attack on the English-born officials who minimised the economic difficulties facing Ireland. And he identifies them, these English officials, with the Cromwellians who burned Drogheda in 1649 and left its churches in ruins. The connection between the two seems to be colonialism, or rather modern colonialism. And it's summed up by Sheridan with a line adapted from Tacitus, and which I heard about two or three weeks ago um, applied to the situation in Ukraine. Um, a line adapted from Tacitus, et ubi solitudinem faciant, id imperium vocant. And where they create desolation, they call it empire. Yet Sheridan was not interested in a comprehensive assault on the lie of empire. His overriding political grievance was the usual grumble of the Irish Anglican elite that those so unfortunate to be born in Ireland were increasingly excluded from high civil and ecclesiastical office. What bothered them was not the exclusion of the Catholic majority from political power, of course, but the fact that the king apparently paid more attention to, quote, the meanest colony in America than to the faithful Protestants of Ireland. And the meanest colony in America reminds us once again of the limitations of what I've called Swift against empire. Although Swift queried the morality of colonial enterprises, his writings nevertheless assumed um, the existence of a scale of human civilization in which the Latinate cultures of Western Europe were at the top and the native Irish were bumping along somewhere at the bottom together with such other um, exotic peoples as the Tupinamba Indians of Brazil. In the Draper's Letters and elsewhere, Swift looked forward to the eradication of Ireland's indigenous language and customs, which he associated with barbarity, poverty, and idleness. The condition of the majority of the people, whether considered as poor, as Catholic, as native, was a key index of civilization in Ireland. But the native Irish were the objects of a historical process. Um, they were the people to whom things were done. They were not independent agents within the historical process, not independent agents in their own right. And the same, I think, is true of Gulliver's famous attack on the modern colonisers who plunder and murder non-European peoples instead of converting and civilising them. Even those who expose the violence and hypocrisy of Europeans in the New World believe that imperial rule could be justified ultimately 
by the extension of the Christian religion of commerce and of the cultivation of the earth. Now, um, how far Aidan Clark would have approved of what I've been saying, <laughs> I really can't say. I'm, I'm very struck um, by the fact that my generation, um, with you know, important exceptions, is really no match for the previous generation in, in straightforward archival spade work and rigour. At least that's what I, I think about myself. Um, on the other hand, we face a challenge that the previous generation didn't face, and that's how to make sure that Ireland continues to be relevant um, in an age when the historiographically privileged status of the West is under attack. And there are people in the room, um, like Professor Olmeyer, who have been rising to this um, challenge recently, also in the room, of course, Ivan McGrath and Patrick Walsh, who have shown how the Irish contributed to empire building financially and as a, a house um, for troops. What I've been trying to do here is to connect Ireland to the intellectual history of empire. Um, that's the sort of history written by people like David Armitage, but also Anthony Pagden, Sankar Mutu. Um, and I think... Something similar could be done for Francis Hutchison, um, who famously was the first philosopher to, to defend the rights of colonies to resist um, the mother country. Or, of course, for Edmund Burke, um, uh, who many people have written about, including, including Uday Singh Mehta, um, who has said of Burke, no thinker or statesman of the 18th century or 19th century expresses anything like the moral indignation that Burke voiced against the injustices, cruelty and greed of empire. I've been speculating about the meaning of swift against empire and I've tried to confine my speculations to intellectual frameworks and polemical concerns that we know were actually accessible to him and affected him. There was the Spanish Shibboleth, the idea that what Spain had done in the New World was um, the opposite, the counter-paradigm of what the English were doing. And Swift's satire always works on this principle um, to make you, the reader, um, confront the thing you most despise and show you that you're no better than it. It's a levelling down kind of satire rather than a levelling up one. So there's the black legend of Spain, there's the example of Rome, uh, which in a variety of ways um, I think was concerned not, as I said, with the brutalisation of the conquered, but with the dangers that the military machine required for conquest um, posed to um, the imperial centre. There was the rejection and adaptation of colonial terminology mm -hmm. There was, of course, the whole theme of the church in danger. And to contextualise Swift in this way doesn't mean that we should rob him of his political relevance. After all, it's not as if we're running <coughs> short of hypocrisy. The world um, we live in, as John Darwin <coughs> remarked, is a world built by empires, not least by the expansion of British power took place in the period that I've been discussing. 
And when we consider the human animal with its extraordinary ingenuity and its immensely destructive appetites, it would be rash, perhaps, to assume that empire is a thing of the past. Thank you. As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.